The following audio is a sermon from Resurrection Sunday at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. For more information, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 24, 1 through 12, and 36 through 48. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returned to the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. A typical resurrection sermon, Sunday sermon, would take you through the chronological events of Luke chapter 24. And we'll get to that. 
But if we just treat this day like any other event in world history, that, we, that is, we just say, right, here's what happened. Uh, there was a dead man. He was put in a tomb. Three days later, tomb's empty. And we just kind of say that and go on our way, go home and eat ham. Then we failed to grasp the magnitude of Resurrection Sunday. There are literally billions of events that compose human history. Some are big, some are little, some are significant. Most are insignificant. But the resurrection is the most important event that has ever happened or will ever happen in human history. Its relevance isn't limited to a specific era or a geographical locale. The resurrection's implications and relevance is global, it's eternal, and deeply personal. But the real question is, why? Why is this event that involves a homeless Jewish misfit that lived 2,000 years ago and over 6,000 miles away so important? How is this event relevant, let alone personal, to you and me here in the Quad Cities in 2019? The answer is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ it's more than just an event. Yes, it is an event. It is a moment. It is a, is a thing that happened in history, but it's more than that. The resurrection is a gift. It's an invitation, and it's a purpose. And until you see the resurrection that way, it will forever and only be to you just another event. And so let me show you what I mean, that the resurrection is a gift, an invitation, and a new purpose. Luke 24 begins with women coming to find an empty tomb. They're going down. There's a, a certain burial process that they follow. They had to delay today because Saturday was technically the Jewish Sabbath, so they didn't do anything that day. They came on Sunday morning to anoint the body with spices and prepare it for its official burial. And when they arrived, they found the tomb was empty. You can imagine the confusion. And all of a sudden, right before them, angels appear. It says they're, they're dazzling. Now, if you think you look good now, you got, I got my Sunday best on. These angels are dazzling. And they speak to the women and say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Now, if you missed it here, they're saying Jesus, who was once a dead man, is now alive. Now, the ladies are perplexed. They're excited. They run and go and tell the disciples who happen to be hiding out because what they're thinking, the, the 12, well, actually, now there's 11 disciples, but the disciples who had followed Jesus were all sort of shacked up, hiding out. They were afraid that they were the next names on the Roman hit list. And these ladies, they run in and they tell the disciples what they saw with their own eyes. Now, Jesus, throughout his ministry, had been telling people what was going to happen. He was going to be killed, and then he, God was going to raise him from the dead. Now, you would think that when they go and tell the disciples what they saw, they'd be like, oh, right, of course, Jesus told us this was going to happen. But that's not what occurred. The disciples hear what the ladies tell them, and they think it's a prank, right? Ladies, can you be more insensitive? We just lost our best friend, and you're here trying to tell us a joke, and scripture says they, they thought it was an idle tale, even though Jesus had told them multiple times it was going to happen. In disbelief, 
The apostle Peter, he runs to see the tomb for himself and he finds the tomb just as they had told him. It's empty. And verse 12 of Luke 24 says that he walked away marveling, just astonished at what he saw with his own eyes. And so he walks back to the rest of the disciples and he goes and he validates what the, the women had told them all along. I feel like, gentlemen, there's, there's a lesson in that for us, maybe for another day. Peter says, it's all true. The tomb's empty. Everything that these ladies told us, it's all true. And while they're conversing about this unlikely event that Jesus has actually risen from the dead, Jesus shows up in a non-ignorable way. Now, I'm praying that that happens to some of us here today. Some of us might have an awareness of who Jesus is. Right, we know what Christianity is about. We know, we know what he taught. We might even have some scripture memorized. But some of us just sort of brush Jesus off like he's a friendly but crazy uncle. Right? Like, okay, Uncle Rico, that's enough of you. We just dismiss him. But here's the thing, if, if Jesus is actually who he says he is, if, if Jesus is actually alive, there's no way that you can ignore a dead man who's been made alive. You can't just brush that off. You have to reckon with that. If I were Jesus, and I knew I was gonna appear to the disciples, I would, I would pull a book from uh, Harry Potter. I've been reading a lot of Harry Potter lately. Just... Apparate, just out of, out, of the, out of clear air, just boom, boo, surprise, just, just to mess with them a little bit. But as the story unfolds, Jesus may have well have done that because the disciples are, are shocked. They're frightened. They, they have no way to process what they saw. In fact, they think that they're seeing a ghost. And again, you'd think the disciples would be like, oh, of course this is, of course this is Jesus. But no, they're, they're in a bit of a tizzy. They're, they're frightened, they're scared, they just can't believe their eyes. Now the first word out of Jesus' mouth isn't like, hey you dummies, it's me, right? He, he gives them what, what's a traditional Hebrew greeting. He says, peace to you. But in this context, given what happened over the last three days, this is more than just an exchange of pleasantries. What Jesus is saying is radically profound. Don't miss this. See, this is where Jesus is offering us a gift. He says, peace to you. Let me tell you what I mean. The world we live in is full of chaos, is it not? It's cruel, it's degrading, it's life-robbing. And you wonder, right, you wonder why we tend to get depressed and anxious. Fear, pain, and grief is unavoidable and seems like it presses in on all sides. The brokenness that we experience in this world leaves us wanting for something better. In fact, all of us have some sort of inclination that things here aren't the way it was meant to be. And we can feel that on every level. We feel, feel it spiritually. We feel disconnected from God. We feel it relationally, right? That's why marriage counseling is a billion-dollar industry. 
You feel it with parenting, all the sort of relationship dynamics that wherever we experience those, you feel it physically, your body wasting away. You feel it emotionally. And it's in this backdrop of the futility of the world that Jesus comes and he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. He's coming to this world and he's saying, hey guys, I want to take things in a different direction. I want to open up a new chapter. I want to give you a new life. I want to mend the brokenness. I want to see all things made right, not just see that. Jesus is going to do it. He's going to renew all the creation. And for the last three years, as the disciples have been following Jesus, they have been buying into this idea that God is going to make things new, that things are turning around for the better. But on Good Friday, the day when Jesus is nailed to the cross, It's as if hope for that future died with Jesus. Just think, you've invested three years of your life following around this guy, and now he's dead. And what do you do next? But this is where Jesus shows up and he says, because I am resurrected, everything that I promised is legit. When he says, peace to you, he, he's not just settling the chaos that's happening in the room at that given moment. What he's telling them is, guys, peace to you. This is the gift of shalom that I'm giving you. Now, shalom is a Hebrew word for peace, and it signifies more than just an absence of conflict. Right? I think a lot of times that when we think of peace, that's what we think of, right? People are just getting along. Everything's cool. Everything's dandy. But the type of peace that Jesus talks about has a breadth and a width that goes beyond that. See, when Jesus says, peace, shalom to you, he's talking about something that's more thorough. He's talking about something that can right all the wrongs. He's talking about wholeness and vitality and an optimized life. What he's talking about is literally the fulfillment of your purest and deepest desires. And he says, peace to you, shalom to you. It's a gift. He's saying that shalom is here right now. Not in full, but bit by bit as Jesus pushes back darkness, starting with his life, death, resurrection. See, that's what Good Friday set in process. This is the process of making things right between a holy God and sinners like you and me. This is the stone in the water that creates all of the ripples. It's there on Good Friday on the cross where Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, the, the rightful and full judgment intended for sinners, intended for people like us because of our sin. Now, our our cultural understanding of sin has taken the hard edge away from sin. When we think of sin, at least culturally, we equate it with something that's naughty. We shrug, ah, yeah, I know I shouldn't do this, but who cares, shrug it off, we'll do it anyway. It's not that big of a deal to us when we think about sin. It's, it's become the spiritual equivalent of eating too many chocolates, right? Oh, I know I shouldn't do this. It's so tempting. Uh. But 
And we can casually agree, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner, whatever. All right, who, who isn't a sinner? But if that's all sin is, then the cross is no big deal. You realize, if, if that's all sin is, then Jesus went to, to death for almost nothing. And you can go ahead and brush it off. But that's not the way the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about it having catastrophic implications. Francis Spooford, who is a, an English apologist, says, he, he gives a very helpful definition of, of what sin is. He says, sin is the human propensity to screw things up. And, and he uses a lot stronger language than screw things up. The reason why the world sucks, can we just admit that, Right? The reason why the world sucks is because humanity has screwed it up and continues screwing things up. Our sin compounds the brokenness, prevents us from living in the world we desire to live in. But sin is so deeply embedded in each and every one of us, the only way to have the world that we desire is for sinful humanity to be wiped out, to not be a part of it, which is a major bummer. (laughs) Major bummer. But God had a plan to restore the world without destroying us. See, instead of destroying us and moving on with this beautiful world that he had envisioned from the very beginning, God would redeem us where all our sin, all our brokenness would be placed upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. Now, that that serves as a visual for how destructive sin really is. You can't just brush it off. And here on the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath. We we saw that on Good Friday. He said, Father, remove this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. It's too much. But if this is your will, let me do it. And Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and he that all of our sins had accumulated throughout the years, and he drank that cup of wrath down to the dregs. Now, if there were still sins to be paid for. Jesus would still be dead. But the resurrection is proof that Jesus' payment on our behalf has been accepted. That is paid in full. The darkness of Good Friday is now overcome by the light of Resurrection Sunday, that we are forgiven of all our sins. And that one day, sin will be completely eliminated from us and the world and shalom will be restored. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. Psalm 37, here's the promise for the righteous. The righteous will inherit the earth. What he's talking about is this ideal version of the earth we desire, the new heavens, the new earth. Now, this is where you see the gift. This is the gift of the resurrection. Here is the, what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus took our sinfulness, we get his righteousness. He took our bleak future so that we could have his bright future, but the gift doesn't end there. In verse 49, we just cut short of it in the scripture reading, Verse 49 said that Jesus is sending the promise of my Father upon you. He, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, that God himself will come into the hearts of those who believe and put their faith on Jesus. 
And as the Spirit is living inside of us, what he's doing, he's doing a lot of different stuff. He's, one, he's helping us become more like Jesus, but inside of us, he's producing the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is that peace, that sense of shalom. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.14 that the Holy Spirit living inside of us is the guarantee that one day our inheritance, that new heavens, new earth, the, glorifi- the glorified earth will be ours. So here is the subtext of Jesus' greeting, peace to you. The, the resurrection means we are gifted new life. That shalom is coming. There's wholeness, renewal, vitality, and it's all ours because of what Christ has done for us. And it's a free gift for any and all who would turn to Jesus and trust in his work, defeating sin, death, and the grave on our behalf. So there's the gift of the resurrection. Now, some of you are a bit skeptical about this resurrection business. I don't blame you. Right? You, you, you think that as I'm talking about the resurrection as a historical event, it sounds sort of presumptuous to you that I would even jump to that conclusion. And let me tell you, if you're skeptical of this, you're in good company. Jesus can work with skeptics. In fact, we look at this passage, his disciples started out that way. They initially thought the resurrection was an idle tale. In verse 38, Jesus addresses their fears and their doubts. And beyond those disciples in that room, some of the greatest Christian thinkers started out as skeptics. So if you're a skeptic, Jesus isn't afraid of your skepticism. And neither are we. In fact, at Sacred City, we love skeptics. We love that you're here. But as you do your research, as you you investigate the resurrection and, and hold up your big questions, Keep this in mind, that that secular research actually validates Jesus Christ of Nazareth as a legit historical person. But the question isn't if he existed or if he is from Nazareth or if he lived in that time period. The question is, is he alive? Has he been resurrected? Now, I think that there's this, like, desire. Can't we just take Jesus' teachings... Can we just appreciate Jesus as a good moral teacher and forget about some of this resurrection business? Right? Because wouldn't that be easier to believe? The answer to that question is no. We, we can't discard the resurrection because Christianity hinges on the validity of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, then Christianity is futile. It's just a phony religion, and Christians ought to be pitied above all people in this world. And so if you want to lay hold of this gift that Jesus has given you, the resurrection is an essential hurdle that you have to clear. Now, some people are thinking, man, I don't know if I could blindly believe Jesus is alive. I don't know if I can subscribe to a blind faith. And let me tell you, neither can I. Jesus doesn't require blind faith. Look at how he engages with the skeptics. Look at this in verse 38. Verse 38, he says, 
And he, he said to them, why are you troubled? And, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieve, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you nothing here to eat? And he gave them a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it. What's Jesus doing here? He's inviting the skeptics in. It's an invitation. This is the resurrection invitation. Come in and look for yourself. Get out your magnifying glass. Touch my hands, my feet for yourself. He actually took one of his disciples, Thomas. He didn't believe. Jesus was standing right before him, and Thomas still didn't believe it was him. He said, look, put your hand in my side where they stabbed me with the spear." It's an invitation. And let me tell you, a skeptic who doesn't do their due diligence in in examining for themselves, they tiptoe the line of ignorance. So so if you're gonna be a skeptic, let me encourage you to at least be a good skeptic. Right? Check it out. Now the question is, how are you gonna examine Jesus if he went on and he ascended into heaven 40 days later, right? Jesus isn't here in the flesh like he was 2,000 years ago. For the first century Christians, they could just walk around and ask any of the 500 or more people who saw Jesus with their own eyes. Like, you saw Jesus, right? Yes, I did. Cool. So we don't have that luxury today, but Jesus still invites us to look and see for ourselves by examining the scriptures to scour the eyewitness gospel accounts and see what the eyewitnesses saw for themselves. Verse 45 says something that's so encouraging to me. It says that Jesus, as he was with his disciples, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus can do the same thing to you too. And as you search, as you look for answers, Know that Jesus is in the process of finding you. But what's perhaps even better than going to the Bible that most people pick up, like, how do I I don't even know where to start? What do I do with this? What's perhaps more entry level is to share life with Christians and see how Jesus is changing and renewing us. Find faithful Christians. There's some let me. There are some crappy Christians out there. Don't hang out with them. Hang out with faithful Christians, right? Hang out with Christians who who live in such a way that their life demands an explanation, right? So you look at them and say, why are you like that? Because that doesn't make sense to me. Because when you see Christians who are humble, Christians who come in and, and without restriction repent of their sins, when you see people who are buoyantly optimistic without neglecting the reality of this world, when you see Christians who are forgiving for some of the most atrocious things, when you see Christians being generous in their own poverty, when you see Christians being inclusive yet holding to the truth of the gospel, that demands an explanation. Christian community 
is perhaps the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense that the resurrection is true. Why else would we live this way? It's not because it's easy. And so we want to invite you, if you're a skeptic, to share life with us. There's no need for you to, to believe. You don't need to subscribe to our faith. We just want you to come and check it out. Right, jump into a missional community. But as Christians, as Jesus invites the skeptics, and, and, and listen, there are Christians who are still skeptics, right? In fact, that's one of the signs that you have a, a working faith, that if you don't blindly accept everything, that, that we can actually question and investigate and grow in our understanding. But here's the purpose. Christians, we have to realize that it's not the skeptic's responsibility to come to us. It's our responsibility to go to them. Jesus is very, very clear about that in verse 46. He says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is standing in that moment with his disciples. He says, for you are witnesses of these things. The same is true of us today, Christians. We are witnesses of these things. In John chapter 20, verse 21, in the same scenario, the apostle John captures it in a different way. He says that Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. Do you want to know why so many people think church is boring? Right? Oh, I don't want to go to church. It's boring. You want to know why that is? It's because the church has lost its purpose. Show me a church that is not faithfully witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. Show me a church that's not living on mission, and I'll show you a church that's dying. Christian community isn't a holy huddle. Right? That's, that's why at Sacred City we don't have small groups. It's not like, hey, come here and hang out with us. Christians are a sent people. That's why we call them missional communities. We're communities with a purpose, communities on mission. Because the peace that Jesus offers us, the gift of peace that he gives to us, doesn't keep us still in our place. It compels us to live with gospel purpose. It compels us to live on mission because the gift he gives us in the resurrection is available to everybody else in the Quad Cities. So let me just say, Christian, if you are not living on mission, if you are not sharing your life if you're not sharing your faith with not yet believers, then it is fair to question if you actually believe the resurrection is true. If you're not showing your faith, if you're not sharing, if you're not proclaiming, it's fair to question if you actually believe the resurrection is true. Because how can you say Jesus defeated sin, death, and the grave and gave you a new life and not tell others about it? The resurrection 
and the mission of the church is inextricably connected. To believe the mission is to now live with purpose. Because in the resurrection, Jesus gives us, right, that gift, but now he gives us a purpose, a new, eternal, global, and meaningful purpose. Who wouldn't want to give their life to something like that? The resurrection upgrades our purpose. Sin had put blinders on us so that we could hardly see in front of us. But Jesus opens up our eyes to see things anew. Now we adopt Jesus' mission as our own. We enter into our world, into our cities to renew them as the gospel is proclaimed and churches are planted. As people are being saved, they hear the good news, they repent of their sin, they're believing on Jesus and finding forgiveness where disciples are made, where people are trusting and following Jesus. And as you do that, as you trust Jesus, you follow Jesus, a truer, better version of yourself is being unlocked as you, come, as you become who you are in Christ. And the best part is now we have a deep and meaningful relationship with God. See, this is why the resurrection is much more than just an event. The resurrection changes you. We now have the gift of new life in Christ. We have a meaningful purpose to live on mission. And he gives us an invitation, not only for skeptics, but for any who doubt and fear so that Jesus could come and open up our minds to know him and our hearts to love him. Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that it's more than an event. Thank you for the gift of setting all wrongs right and starting a relationship with you. Thank you for the new purpose you've given your church Help us to believe the resurrection, to live like missionaries in our city. I pray, Father, as we wrestle with skepticism and doubts, that you would open up our minds to know you and our hearts to love you. And Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper this morning, for the reminder that it serves of what Jesus endured on the cross, how his body was broken, how his blood was shed to atone for our sin but also how this meal is the means of grace that sustains and propels the church to live on mission as witnesses to the gospel in our city and beyond. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.